From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast after, I admit, a pretty long hiatus. have to uh, report that a very tenacious seven-month-old has colonized the EPR Creation Studio of late, and it's been a bit difficult to get shared studio time. That's been one factor. Another factor has been uh, that I've been almost singularly focused on finishing my second book, pretty much pouring all of my energy into that so that I can move on with the rest of my life uh, after this project is done. Getting pretty close to done, but uh, I've managed to squeeze out some some studio time here so that I can begin to catch up. And uh, I've also, I think, finally got a setup that will allow me to to do some some more podcasting when I don't have access to the EPR Creation Studio, I've got some remote possibilities at this point, which should help moving forward. So there's an incredible amount of stuff to uh, to catch up on that that I haven't discussed or haven't uh, haven't haven't had the time to be able to uh, to cover on this podcast or on the uh, Patreon page. Which uh, those of you who are Patreon supporters have probably noticed that I uh, paused. The donations on that uh, some time ago so that basically if you're a supporter on that, first of all, thank you very much for that. But until I'm uh, putting out the uh, the content that makes it worthwhile, then I don't want to uh, to have anybody uh, contributing on that. So I've uh, I've had that paused, probably have it paused uh, for uh, for another month yet. And then hopefully by the end of that, I'll have put up enough to warrant reopening that. And uh, once again, I appreciate those of you who've uh, who've reached out and uh, also those of you who've been supporters up to now uh, very much appreciate uh, the continued support throughout all of this but um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting back into it and uh, and hopefully should be able to get some sense of normalcy and start getting regular episodes out soon I've still got to cover some recruiting stuff from the last cycle going through uh, what I think of the uh, of, of that class moving into the this next cycle there's a lot to discuss there. And I've got a lot of mail mailbag stuff to go through as well. So we're, we're going to work through all of this sequentially as uh, as I basically catch back up with where things are in, in the year, in this cycle, as we all start to get back to some sense of normalcy after uh, a year plus of coronavirus weirdness as well. So uh, like I said, really grateful to be back. This episode, we're going to talk pretty much about two things. One is we're going to talk some about the spring game and the other is we're going to talk about a really, really big commitment that Florida State has just landed, and that is A.J. Duffy. And I'm going to start with that, that second one first. I, I was very clear on my last podcast when Florida State got the commitment from uh, Nico Marchial, who I managed to uh, mispronounce his, his name the whole way through. Uh, apparently he does pronounce it the true Italian way, so good for him. Uh, but... Uh, one of the things I mentioned there is that Marchial, to me, seemed like a really good number two option in this class. And I felt like that allowed Florida State the opportunity to pull out the stops and try to reel in a national level, top, top tier quarterback recruit in this cycle. And the guy that I pegged as as the one that I liked the most that that Florida State had any interest in or had any chance at was AJ Duffy. I've been very clear on that from the beginning. I think he's one of the say 3 to 5 best quarterback prospects this cycle. At least of those that I've seen. And I've seen I I've gone through and watched with some 
uh, attention, some some detail. I've looked at, I would say, probably the top 20 rated quarterbacks plus at least that nationally and, and probably more than that. Uh, and, and to be honest, I think Duffy is underrated. If you look at the tools that he brings to the table and also some of the other things that, uh, that, that come into play in terms of him being a, a coach's son and having been around the game a long, long time. And another thing that I'm, I'm big on is when you can get a guy that's been a you know three or four year starter in high school, that's a big deal. And he, I mean, he was a, a starter at a very good high school in California as a sophomore. Now, this last season got canceled, so we haven't seen, nobody's seen him play in, a, in over a year, except for the one jamboree that they had uh, in, in 2020. So I went and I looked at that 2020 stuff, and you can see the growth from year to year over the sophomore year, junior year. My prediction is that as he puts out senior tape, as he puts out senior senior footage from IMG over the over the next few months, so once we get into the 2021 season, as he puts out that the uh, puts out senior year stuff, he's going to wind up in the top three or four quarterbacks in the country. I, the the tools are all there, and Florida State fans should be absolutely thrilled that this guy wants to play at Florida State because he's a guy that. He could come in and compete day one. Uh, he's one of those guys. The combination of, again, being a coach's son, being around ball his whole life, and all of the tools. There's nothing in terms of mechanics and all these other things that you really have to rebuild. He can make every throw already. He could make every throw as a sophomore. And his arm has gotten stronger. He gets rid of it very quickly, quick and efficient delivery. Uh, one of the things I really like about him is that he generates his power very clearly from his hips and core. And so, you know, you can see him when he wants to put extra velocity on the football, you can see him generate that and really uh, produce that torque through his body. And the arm is just whipping down the line. And all of that is, that's how I coach it when I'm coaching quarterbacks. That's how the best quarterback mechanics guys in the country coach their quarterbacks to throw it should all be coming from your hips up and the 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 arm is just the end of the whip you just crack that whip and let the arm go down the line and that's going to allow you to snap the ball off with more velocity and more accuracy and also as you learn to do that you can do that on the run you can do it off platform you can do all sorts of things I mean all you have to do is look probably your best example of this is is someone like um Aaron Rodgers who is maybe the best thrower in NFL history. He's up there. He's, he's in the discussion. If he's not the guy, then, you know, maybe the guy at Kansas city might overtake him over time, you know, be, become that. But Rogers is a freak thrower and he became more of that as he got to the NFL, as he learned how to generate that power from his hips and he can throw from any position. It doesn't matter if the pocket's muddy. It doesn't matter if his right foot's in front of his left. It doesn't matter if he's on the move. He just, is able to generate that power from his hips and flick the ball down the field. And it's very efficient, very easy, very quick getting off his hand. And I see with a guy like Duffy, I see the ability to develop into that kind of, uh, that, that kind of delivery. It's all, the tools are already there. The basics are already there. There's just not a whole lot to fix, really nothing to fix. 
and you look at the at the ball placement when he's throwing downfield, you're talking about elite ball placement. And elite ball placement, he was borderline elite ball placement as a sophomore. So you're talking about that. I mean, when you're talking comparing him to some of these other guys, you're looking at sophomore tape of the stuff that's up there right now, except for a, a few things that are floating around that you have to find, you know, from the jamboree uh, from last year. But you're looking at junior film from everybody else, from all the from the states where you know people played, like in Texas. And now when he gets down to and all of the feedback from IMG has been super positive about this guy in terms of his leadership, in terms of his ability to adjust to the new surroundings and new teammates and all of this. This is a home run for Florida State. If they can get, actually keep him, that's the big thing is that they've got to keep him. But this is a home run for Florida State. And I, you know, I got a, I got a question on social media. Somebody, somebody uh, tossed this at me. Like, is this a Jameis level recruit for Norvell? And I have to think about that for a little bit. Now, I think that's too high of a bar to ask for a guy. I mean, you're talking about a guy that won the Heisman Trophy as a redshirt freshman. So do I expect that? No. But Duffy is a guy that could be a Sam Howell. And, you know, long term, he's not far talent wise from a guy like Jameis. I mean, it's it's not out of the question. I think it's too high of a bar to expect. But I mean, I'm t- I think when you look at what Sam Howell was coming out of high school and you look at, at Duffy. Howell was a bit more proven. He had more, you know, again, he didn't miss his his junior year due to due to Corona. He had more experience. The systems were lined up a little bit better. The system that they ran uh, down where Howell was playing high school ball in Charlotte was almost identical. It was very similar to the system that he walked into at Florida State, and that's not going to be the case for Duffy. So there are some disadvantages there that relative to that. But in terms of tools, in terms of some other stuff, I mean, He's that level of, of, of recruit. You're talking about a guy that could walk in the door like Sam Howell did as an early enrollee and immediately content, not only contend for playing time, but maybe be the favorite for playing time. And I, look, I said this back in February before it was likely that he would wind up at Florida State. That was just me saying, look, I've, I've watched all these guys. And if there was one guy that I could that I that if I'm Mike Norvell that I would really want to target and pull out the stops and commit to to getting that guy, it's AJ Duffy, and that's who they got. That's who they've got committed. And the other thing is, given the the reputation that he has with other recruits and all that, that's certainly going to help Florida State moving forward in terms of attracting more talent into into this class and getting him at this stage, getting him early, is also huge. Now, of course, I do have some questions. I mean, I've already seen that Nico Marchial is is uh, scheduling some official visits to other schools now. So West Virginia, uh, Michigan State. Not that surprising. And look, I mean, you can't blame him. Now, Florida State has been very clear with all of the quarterbacks that they're recruiting. We're recruiting. We, we need to we need to sign two quarterbacks. And. I've got some questions about this. Like, how do you do this as a, as a staff? How do you recruit two guys in one cycle? You know, how do you tell them like, look, you're, you say, you're our number one guy. How does this work? Well, you know, if the guy is your number one guy, you tell him that. But at the end of the day, what you tell these guys is, look, we, we have a need at the position. We need two we need two guys. And the fact is we're going to bring in two guys that we think can play. So if we're recruiting you, we think you can play. 
And whatever is going to happen, we're going to give you every opportunity to win this job. Every opportunity. We're going to give a fair, it's going to be a fair competition. And whoever wins out, whoever moves the team best in, you know, spring and fall practices is going to be the guy that wins. And you, you have as good a chance as anybody at that. Number one. Number two, don't be afraid to come here just be, because of competition. Look, we're, we're recruiting you because we think you're a guy that's not going to be scared off by competition. And secondly, if it, if things happen such that you don't win the position, let's say maybe you get hurt or something. We have our situation set up so that you will graduate in three years. So you're going to have three years to win the job. And if at the, at the end of your third year, you haven't won the job and you decide that you want to walk off as a grad transfer, we're going to have you set to go. And then if you, if you win the job as a true freshman and you're ready to go as a, as a, you're ready to go pro after your, after your third year on campus, you know what? Great. You'll also have graduated. So we're going to be set to do this. We're going to make sure that we coach all of our quarterbacks hard in practice. We're going to make sure that you get every bit of coaching to develop the way that you should, regardless of whether you're on the field or not. And the fact is, if you look at the numbers, Generally speaking, teams need their backup quarterback at some point. So even if you don't win the job day one, you're going to be on the field at some point. And every year there's going to be a new competition and you're going to have a chance to show that you're the best guy. That's what you do. And if a guy decides he doesn't want one in, if a guy decides, eh, you know, mm, now, you know, I think Duffy might actually be better than me. Or I, I, I might think that the coaches are more excited about him than they were about me. And so I'm going to go elsewhere. Maybe that happens. I don't, you know, if that happens, then what do you do? You go out and you grab another, another number two. And you're asking a guy like Marky, I'll look, if you're not going to stick, we want to know earlier. We want to know earlier than later. You know, you knew that we were recruiting two guys. You knew that Duffy was a possibility. But if, if this is one of those situations where you really aren't interested in competing with him, then let us know. And then we're going to pull out all the stops to go after a guy like MJ Morris, kid from Georgia. So that's what you do. In any case, I think that this is, I think Duffy is the best quarterback recruit that Florida State has gotten a commitment from in a long, long time. And yeah, I mean, you start going back and you look just, just in terms of arm talent and physical tools, the last guy that had this kind of arm talent and physical tools that Florida State signed was Malik Henry. And he had some red flags. I think he's got I think he's got better arm talent overall than DeAndre Francois did coming in. And DeAndre had a had a huge arm. The difference is that Duffy not only has a big arm, Duffy has really, really good touch and hand talent to be able to change speeds. That's something that that showed up even on his sophomore sophomore tape. I mean that that's there. And if you got a guy that has it, that a guy has it or he doesn't. It's hard to change once you get to a certain age. But this is a kid that knows how to change speed. He knows how to change location. And again, the ball placement is elite from this guy. So I think, you know, you're looking at that level of physical talent and then without the red flags. So, I mean, th that's something to be really, really excited about if you're a Florida State fan. Obviously, lots of other things on the recruiting front that we're, we're going to have to talk about on future episodes. I mean, from... The Kelly decommitment, uh, you'll recall that 
I was very bullish on Kelly when uh, when they took his commitment back when he was a three star. I felt like he might might wind up top five edge prospect in the country, and sure enough, he's blown up, and now he's no longer in the class. Uh, that's a big loss. But if you're going to lose a guy on the edge, it's a good year to lose a guy on the edge because this might be the best edge class in Florida in a decade. So uh, you know, the main thing is that they've got to make sure they land. Shade Tree Jr. and a couple of these other uh, legacies, along with some some other guys that they have a real good shot at landing. And this class has a really cha- a really good chance of being the kind of class that Mike Norvell needs to turn this program around. I mean, I, I did get a uh, get asked a question uh, after the spring game. Uh, someone called me on the phone and said, "You know, watching that spring game, how long do you how long do you think it's going to take?" And my response was, "Well, I mean, really depends on." what level of quarterback they're able to get in this next recruiting class. Who, who do they sign? Are they going to get a Duffy? If they get a Duffy, it might be two years before they're, you know, basically back at the, at a competitive level, like really legitimately competitive, maybe not at the level that, you know, Florida state should be overall, but that could be three years down the line. If you've got a guy like, like Duffy that you, uh, that you put on the field could be th- two, three years. If they don't land that kind of guy, in this class, well, you know, might might not happen under this coaching staff. So that's how important this is, in my view. And it was, you know, just a little bit later, just another what uh, week or two later that 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 Duffy decided to uh, to commit to the to the staff. So, like I said, that is that is huge. This is the recruiting class that this staff knows is going to make or break their their time in Tallahassee. This this class has to be like a twenty eleven recruiting class. That's the class that had Devontae Freeman, Rashad Green, Bobby Hart, Trey Jackson, Timmy Jernigan, Josue Matias, Nick O'Leary, Terrence Smith, Kelvin Benjamin, James Wilder Jr. You know, all of these guys were in that 2011 recruiting class. And that's the kind of class that this one really needs to be for Norvell to get Florida State to where he wants Florida State to be. And when you sign, when, when, when you have a commitment from a guy like Duffy, when you have a commitment from a guy like Travis Hunter, who might be the best player in the country, regardless of position, when you have those guys as your bell cows, and then you're, you're basically selling, you have tons of playing time to sell. You've got a very attractive product. You just have to show a little bit of growth on the field in this next year and be able to hold that together, get those guys on campus. And now you're developing. Now, all of a sudden you got a shot so that, Again, that 2011 class, 2012, you know, by the end of 2012, they were pretty good. You know, they were starting to really plug in with some of the other stuff, some of the other guys that had been on campus longer. But that 2013, 2014 season, you got to see what that 2011 class could really do. And with Duffy in this class, you're essentially bringing in your top quarterback who Florida State got in 2012. You're bringing that in with that class. But that's what this this class really needs to be. So as always, this podcast brought to you by EPR Creations, by Luis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Newsma of Keller Williams Realty in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida. As always, thanks very much to my sponsors. So the second part of this podcast, I'm going to go ahead and uh, walk through some of the what I would have done if it were an instant reaction podcast after watching the spring game. And then I'm going to, I'm going to do some more detailed discussion of this down the line, but this is sort of the quick and dirty uh, of what I saw out there in the spring game. And ultimately what I think the implications of what we saw out there are. Uh, 
So the first, the first and most obvious thing that stood out to me is that the, the overall talent level on the roster is the lowest it's been in, in at least a decade, I would say. This is not a talented Florida State roster. You, all you have to do is look at, the, and in particular, you just look at the defensive line, you look at the overall defensive line, linebackers, and so on, and you don't see some of the dudes that have been there in the past. And, you know, I know that there are some people who are really optimistic about, well, you know, they got better. They, they're finally getting rid of the busts who've not been able to produce. And look, there's, there's some truth to Florida State not getting the production that they should have out of a couple of the guys that got drafted this last weekend. But here's the thing. On, the, on last year's team, if you were going to have, if you were going to choose who got off the bus first, it was pretty obvious what guys on that team you were going to have get off the bus first. It was going to be Kando, Janarius Robinson, and then maybe Marvin, uh, Marvin Wilson. Marvin less so, just more size there. But Kando and Robinson, I mean, one of the reasons they both got drafted in the fourth round, despite the overall lack of production, is because those guys, they, they, they look like they were built in a lab to play in the NFL. So, you know, you see that and you see that overall physical talent there. And yes, Kando was was hurt most of his career at Florida State, and he played hurt a good portion of last year, which impacted his productivity then. And Janarius never really seemed to get comfortable in what Florida State was asking him. I mean, you got to remember, those guys had four different position coaches and four different defensive schemes that they played in. And it just never clicked for those guys. But the fact is the talent, (laughs) look, you don't go in the NFL draft. You don't go a fourth round in the NFL draft with zero sacks in the, in your last year in college without being a freak. And one of the things that just seems to be missing right now from Florida state's roster is a handful of those freaks. And that's what they've got to get back. In my opinion, really, what you have to what you have to have to be able to compete at the level that Florida State wants to compete at, you have to have a solid foundation of, let's say, forty really good Power Five level players, guys that are quality players that are draftable potentially, you know, maybe, but you know, they don't have to be NFL type players. But you've got to have that handful of freaks that are just difference makers. Ideally on the defensive side, you have at least three of them, one on each level. So, you know, say one on the edge, one at uh, one on the inside, and then one in the secondary or, you know, one on the defensive line, one in the one at linebacker, one in the secondary, you know, ideally you have at least something like that. Three is kind of your minimum. If you really want to be elite, you need to have four or five of those guys at a minimum on your defense guys that you have to, as an offensive coordinator, you have to know where they are and you have to worry about schematically. You have to have those guys. And when I'm looking at Florida state's current roster, I don't see a whole lot of those guys. Now, Jermaine Johnson looked the part. 
he he was the best looking guy on Florida State's roster. Now the th- the thing that's discouraging about that is he transferred partly because he was unlikely to get a whole lot of playing time at Georgia this next year. He was probably going to be third on the depth chart at that specific position. And he is so far and away the best guy that Florida State has on the edge that it's it's ridiculous. And he looked the part. But again, look at the tackles that he's going against and you have to be, you know, you have to sort of hold your your uh, your optimism there because Janarius and, and Kendo looked like that last year as well against those tackles. So, and frankly, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people say, well, jo- Johnson's just obviously way better than Janarius and, and, and Kendo. Well, I, I, that's not true. I mean, go back. It's you know, obviously been a while since I, I did it, but it's only a couple podcast episodes ago where, you know, I talked through the, the metrics. What, what were the actual comparisons on a per play down by down basis? What, what did they actually produce? What did they do? How many, not just sacks. That's one thing people, people are going, oh, well, Johnson had way more sacks than both of them combined. Yeah, but see, this is where, again, go back to Jimbo Fisher used to say this, and he was right. It's not about sacks. Like, people focus so much on sacks as the, as the number. But sacks, and sacks are great, don't get me wrong. But you can have a guy that has, say, six sacks that actually caused less havoc than a guy that had none. Let's say the guy that had none had 15 pressures. And the guy that had six sacks just happened to have managed to get the guy on the ground on the seven or eight pressures that he had. It was the other guy, the guy that got all the pressures that actually caused more havoc, that caused more problems for the offense in the in, in the grand scheme of things. And if you're playing on a better defense where the secondary, I mean, Georgia had three guys uh, get drafted from that from that secondary. If you're playing with a with a great secondary behind you, the quarterback's going to hold on to the ball a little bit longer. Florida State situation was so bad that teams could basically isolate whoever they wanted on a safety or a linebacker and get open. And so you're not only are you not going to get as many sacks just because you you know you're in your fourth defense on on the year. But you're not going to get as many sacks because the quarterbacks are able to just basically drop back and get rid of it whenever they want, like it's seven on seven, and they don't have to worry about the rush because they're getting rid of it so quickly. Against Georgia, you have more opportunities if you're playing on the Georgia defense to get some sacks. So you have to look at the other numbers, and the other numbers for Johnson were almost identical to Janarius Robinson's numbers last year at Florida State. Now, that's not a bad thing, necessarily. I mean, Janarius just went in the fourth round of the NFL draft. But that should temper our enthusiasm in terms of, you know, is Johnson going to be an All-American on the edge? Probably not. But I do think he's a better fit for the defense than Janarius Robinson was. I expect him to be an upgrade overall in that respect. But the problem is that you only got one of those guys. Only one of them. And... I didn't see anybody else on that defensive line that I go, oh man, that guy is just a dog. They're going to, defenses are, or offenses are going to be terrified, you know, with Johnson there and then whoever else, you know, on the defense. I saw a bunch of guys that are good players and a few guys and not such good players, but basically the guys in that first group and, and into the second group for the defensive line, there's this, there's a, a bunch of guys that are, you know, reasonable quality, but they're not difference makers. They're going to need Keir Thomas, 
to really be a player on the other side. That's for sure. Now, you know, obviously he did not play in the, in the spring game. If he's able to come in in the fall and be a dude on the other side, then a lot of my concerns here are minimized a good bit. Because now you've got two guys on the edge that you can kind of hang your hat on and say, okay, both guys are, are legit upper-level guys. But Keir Thomas is going to have to be that kind of player. He's going to have to be a legit player on uh, at that Fox position for Johnson to really be what he needs to be at the at the defensive end position, so that then they can uh, they can maximize what they're getting on the inside. But the fact is, you're not basically you're not going to replace Kando Robinson and Marvin Wilson, even though Marvin didn't get get drafted. Which part of that was because of uh, of medical concerns, and this year teams were more conservative about medicals than most years because they didn't have a combine, but. You're not losing those three guys and getting better on the defensive line with the guys that with the way that Florida State's recruited the last few years. They just aren't. And again, they've got some chances to be solid on the defensive at the defensive tackle position. Solid. But I don't see a Timmy Jernigan. I don't see even an Eddie Goldman. And that, you know, that's really what Florida State needs to get back to to be where they need to be. And at linebacker without Emmett Rice. They've still got some significant weaknesses. They they basically have one guy in uh, in Gainer who can fit in terms of running well enough to cover, and he's not natural as a coverage guy. And then the other the other backers basically can't cover, which is a, a pretty big concern in a, in a conference that's going to require that your backers be able to cover a lot. So they've got a weakness there. And then at defensive back, I think they'll be fine. I'd like Travis Jay at wide receiver more, I think. I think they need the the playmaker. And I think he, to some degree, is at safety. He's he's a good player, but at, at, when he gets the ball in his hands, he's special. But, you know, they're going to be fine at corner. They've got enough bodies to throw at that position now that are that are quality bodies. And they're going to be good at safety, especially once they get uh they they get green back and a couple of the guys that didn't play. They're gonna be they're gonna be fine in the secondary, I think. But again, I ask. Who's the guy that, who's the, the complete stud? Who's the difference maker at corner? Who's the guy that comes in and says, yeah, I'm better than Asante Samuel was last year. Do they have one of those guys? I, I, so that's really where I, where I see the, the problem. I see, I see some weaknesses on defense. And then I see an, the absence of the true difference-making studs that you've got to have to, to really compete at anywhere close to the level that Florida State wants to. So, you know, that's just on the defensive side. And quite frankly, I mean, if I want to expand this to the, to the larger team, and I'll probably just wait to do the offensive side in the next podcast, which hopefully will be sometime within the next, you know, two months. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll probably wait for that. But I do want to mention, I mean, I was talking to uh, to another another person that I, I respect in all this uh, not long ago, and, and we, he asked me, he said, you know, how many, how many guys on this roster do you think are just dead weight? And I actually went through, we, I, I just looked at the roster and we counted together on the phone. And I said, here's, here's, here's my list. And I concluded that 18 to 20 guys on this roster are basically dead weight. That is, they're guys where if they left... If that guy transferred, nobody would notice. Now, one of those guys is already actually just transferred. 
has just entered the portal. But there's a series of, you know, I mean, you can do it yourself. Get on a roster and, and ask yourself, okay, so if this guy transferred, would I notice? Would I feel like, oh man, that's really awful. That's, that's a problem. And that they're going to have to recruit their way out of it. This is not a situation where you can just develop your way necessarily out of that so easily. And, you know, the fact is that this is, this is not as talented as they've been. And that's due to transition class from Fisher to, to, uh, to Taggart, then transition class from Taggart to Norvell, and then a COVID-19 <laughs> class. I mean, basically three out of your last four classes have been subpar largely because of transition. And that's really, really hard. And then you, you, you combine all of that with the COVID-19 situation where you weren't able to train these guys the way that they needed to last off season. And you can see what the results are. This is a small football team. It's small. They don't have the size. I mean, it reminds me actually of like the 2009 team, maybe the 2008 team in terms of how small they are. They're just, they don't have, they don't look like one of those teams that when they're getting off the bus, you go, oh man, that's a championship type team. And this is not due to a strength and conditioning issue. I've seen some folks ask that question and I'll, I'll address this more in a, in a future episode, but that's not due to a special, a special, uh, a strength and conditioning situation. That's not due to that. It, what it's due to is that this is a very young team. You have basically the majority of this team is sophomores and freshmen. And then not a bunch of the, not a bunch of those guys are blue chip guys. So if you're going to have a team of sophomores and freshmen and you want to look like, look the part coming off the bus then you better be getting a bunch of four and five star guys. Those guys are going to look that way coming out of high school. Otherwise, well, you're not going to look that way. So you've got a very young team. Your three transition classes post Jimbo, which means there are not as many blue chip guys. Then you didn't have a summer last year, which is when you get bigger generally in a, in, in the, in a football season, in, in, in the flow of the football year. And then the rest are transfers. 75% of this roster had not been through a full offseason at Florida State. So you can't blame strength and conditioning at that point. If 75% of your roster has not been through a full full offseason at your university, you've not had a chance to develop them at, at all. And that's where they stand. And the result of that is a team that is small, that needs a, they need to have a great summer. They need to be on the Bama nutrition plan over the course of the summer to get where they need to be. And like I said, I'm going to, I'm going to address the offensive side in the next episode. I'll, I'll revisit some of these points in the next episode and feel free to shoot me some questions as well. If you have any more questions that you want me to specifically address or things that you specifically want me to address uh, about the spring game uh, on the next episode, which uh, I, I'm hoping to put out within, uh, within a week. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap here. 35 minutes, good enough for uh for a return for a part one of catching up uh, after quite a while off, after basically a uh, inadvertent leave of absence. Looking forward to uh, being back and being able to discuss all of this with you all, and looking forward to being able to break down some some tape uh, over the course of the summer. Uh, got some Milton tape that I want to look at, and uh, some other stuff from the spring game we'll talk about uh, over on Patreon. Lots of things to uh, to get to, but. We'll go ahead and wrap this episode here. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening.
The Unconquered Podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Newsma of Keller Williams Realty in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Garage Makeovers of Palm Beach and Broward County, and the Unconquered Podcast Shop, which features stickers, magnets, and other Seminole gear. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts, post us on social media, and tell a friend. Thanks also to those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast from supporters. Special thanks to those above the bleach numbers level. That is Keith Cheney, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Andrew Garrett, Brian Leninger, Travis Smith, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. As well as Jonathan Kennedy and Tyler Kashishki. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. I made this.